Okay. Well, tonight we are continuing our journey through an experiential theology, which is really systematic theology, just preached through in a way that it raises our affections for Christ and His Word while renewing our minds with the truths of the doctrines taught in the Bible. So, as we continue this night uh, with um, the doctrines of the Bible, we're going to talk about the canon of Scripture, and uh, tonight will probably be a little bit shorter than usual. I'm sure there aren't any protests about that. Uh, I want to touch just very briefly on the canon of Scripture, so we'll really just kind of scratch the surface. We've spoken about how the Bible is the very Word of God. We've come to understand how God inspired the authors, what we mean by the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. We have rightly concluded that the Bible must be authoritative since it is God's inspired Word. And all of those doctrines really should instill a deep sense of trust for us in the Bible. That's what it should do. I hope that's what it has done for you so far. And now we really come to the point where there's a question that we need to address at least briefly, and that's the question that almost every Christian has at some stage in their walk, mostly early on, and that's how do we know we have the right books in the Bible? After all, the Catholic Bible has far more books than ours, and so who has the right Bible? It's a good question, it's a valid question, and it's one that we really do need to take some time to answer. Fortunately, this is not a very difficult question to answer, and I think you'll see that God in His sovereignty gives us a really clear history of the Bible so that we can be confident that we have everything that we need in Scripture, that there has not been anything left out, nor has there been anything added. When we think of the Bible and the books that it contained, we tend to generally think of them as separate books, right? We'll talk about, even tonight, the 66 books of the Bible, but in reality, we need to understand that the Bible is really one book from one divine source, God. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Bible was penned by over 40 different men, and God oversaw the process over a period of about 1,500 years. And so that's what we're looking at when we think of the Bible being written. The first book, Genesis, was written by Moses around 1400 B.C. And the last book, book of Revelation, not Revelations, just Revelation, was written by John about 62 years after the death of Christ, so that puts it around 95 A.D. Now, just think about that for a moment. The book that we have, the Bible, was written by over 40 different human hands over the course of 1,500 years, and it flows together perfectly. It weaves a perfect narrative of Christ from the beginning to the end. And throughout it, though it has some paradoxes, it never contradicts itself, not even in one place. That in and of itself should say something to us. How do 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years 
write a book that is in perfect unison with each other. Different cultures, different time periods, different things happening in the world, different levels of education, different personalities. And yet they were somehow able to produce a book that is in perfect unison one writing to another and the whole overarching theme of Scripture being exactly the same, that could never happen outside of something miraculous. It could never happen outside of the fact that the Bible is written by God by way of inspiration using men. And so in some ways, once you think about it, questioning the authenticity of the Bible isn't really much different than, let's say, looking at a monkey and deciding that clearly we must have come from that. It's about the same level of thinking. The Bible's very existence, I would argue, is evidence enough of God just because of what we said. There's no way possible that men outside of some miraculous oversight and inspiration could ever compile work like the Bible. Now, having said that, there are some valid questions about how we came to have the Bible we now know and love. How do we know which sacred writings were to be in the canon of Scripture and which ones were to be excluded? And to be quite frank, this is a question, particularly with new believers, that causes a great deal of stress. And I understand that. It's just very simply an issue of knowledge and gaining a little bit of information. So essentially, there are three primary principles that were used in order to acknowledge what was and what was not inspired Scripture. Three principles, basically, that were used in forming what we call the canon. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Number one was to consider the author. The author had to be an apostle or a prophet or someone that was a known associate with one of the two. We have five books in that category that was an associate in the New Testament. We have Mark, Luke, Hebrews, if you think Hebrews wasn't written by Paul, James, and Jude. All the other books were written by apostles in the New Testament. The second measure is that the writing could not disagree with any of the other previously written books that were known to be Scripture. So if all of a sudden a letter was getting passed around and it was signed by the Apostle Paul, because you know there were people who did that back in those days too, and it contradicted the letters that we knew were from the Apostle Paul or that we knew were from Moses, then clearly it was a fake document and it was not received. So the writing had to be by an apostle and a prophet or someone known to be associated with them. It also had to be in agreement with every other known uh, scriptural document. And the third is that the church had to, by general consensus, agree that the book was indeed in line with the first two and inspired by God. Now, this is the whole general church at the time we're talking about. So occasionally, people will suggest that we only got the canon of Scripture, the books of the Bible, in later councils, and that these 
councils were the ones that decided which books were and were not in the Bible. That's not exactly true. Um, it, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding. What later councils did was recognize that the books we had were inspired by God, and they did, in fact, belong to the Bible. They didn't have some sort of vote where they decided this book, not this book. That is not what happened. Effectively, it was because of heresy that came up, and we'll talk about this later tonight, that councils were forced to formally address the issue of the canon of Scripture. But what they did was recognize what the church already had historically known. So it is not true that any later council decided what was and was not to be in the Bible. That was recognized by the church really long before any council. So what is the canonicity of Scripture? Well, canonicity speaks to the church's acceptance of the books of Scripture as God's inspired word. Now, the word comes from the Greek word canon, which was frequently understood to be used uh, to be a rod that was used for measuring. Okay, And so Paul actually uses this word in Galatians 6.16, where he says, and those who will walk in step with this rule, and that word for rule is the Greek word canon, and those who will walk in this step with this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so here Paul is using it as a standard or a rule for believers. So this is just really to illustrate that the word was used to convey a rule or a measure of some sort, uh, even with Paul and in Paul's day. And then we come to about the year 350 with Ath Athanasius, and he uses the term specifically for the first time to refer to a collection of books that were to be recognized as the divine inspired word of God. So the word canon we have all the way back um, with Paul, and then you come all the way up to 350 A.D. Uh, with Athanasius, and he officially uses the term to speak about the books of the Bible collectively. Now, there are essentially two defining views of the canon of Scripture. We have the unbiblical view and the biblical view. The unbiblical view is the Roman Catholic view that the Bible is an authoritative collection of books. Now you say, that doesn't sound wrong. What's wrong with that? Well, in other words, the Bible contains the books the church determined were Scripture, and that's what they mean. So the Catholic view is that the church has the authority to decide which books are in the Bible and which books aren't. So the church has the right to keep or discard books. That is the Roman Catholic Church's view. The biblical view is that the Bible is comprised of divinely authoritative books. In other words, no person or people or the church even determines which books are inspired or not inspired, but the books, the letters, the epistles, the writings themselves having the authority of God because they are the word of God speak for themselves we merely recognize that to be true. Does that make sense? So, on one hand, you have the view that the church has really the authority to decide what is and isn't God's Word. On the other hand, we have 
The church who simply recognizes that this is in fact God's word, therefore we must submit to it. So the word holds the authority with one. The church has ultimate authority on the other. Ultimately, it would mean that the word of God is not really the word of God until the Roman Catholic Church says it is. If that's that's a helpful way to look at that, I think. <clears throat> we would say that it's the word of God because it's inspired by God. And so we just simply say yes and amen. Okay. Um, yeah, that's basically the big difference. The Catholic Church believes that they have the supreme authority to decide. The biblical view is that God is his own authority. And we accept uh, the writings because they have inherently his authority stamped on them. So the correct view of canonicity really has to be centered around the fact that the writings of Scripture are inspired by God and therefore they are authoritative. So a process of discovery or a council or a group of people don't actually have the authority to decide what is and is not Scripture. They merely have the authority, really, to verify what is not Scripture, such as if there was a document that was, you know, teaching something counter to what they knew to be Scripture. So this is just kind of some general information here. Now I want to get into some more specifics. I want to look at the Old Testament first, and then we'll look in the New Testament. By the time Christ was born, speaking of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament were already universally recognized as Scripture. So by the time Christ is born, there's no argument, there's no discussion, there is no question as to what the Old Testament is. That is all settled. Okay? So we're, any books that come much later on that were added, right, would have been, in fact, against the regulation of adding to Scripture. By the time Jesus is born, the whole church is generally, as a whole, settled on what books are the Old Testament. Now, we should say that many of these books were combined, and they were treated as one book rather than how we have them today. So you might find reference to uh, the 22 books of the Hebrew Bible, that's just because, for instance, in, they put together like First and Second Samuel were combined into one scroll. So we count them as two books. They would have counted it as one scroll. But the same 39 books that we have in the Old Testament are the same books that by the time Jesus came uh, on the scene were already accepted as Old Testament, already accepted as Scripture. Okay, so they just simply put books... Uh, together and separated them differently as time went on. So we have the same that they have. Now, the Old Testament was written over quite a long period of time, over a thousand years, around a thousand years. The first five books, which we call the Pentateuch, were all done by Moses before he died around 1405 B.C., with the exception of Deuteronomy. And there's an exception of Deuteronomy because it chronicles Moses' death. So obviously Moses didn't do that. Okay, He didn't write that. Uh, it was most, most likely written by Joshua. So the first five books were never ever in question at all by anyone 
as the authoritative word of God, and they were placed into the ark, right? We read in Deuteronomy 31, 24, and 26, it says, And it happened when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were completed, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Okay, so we have that. So the three principles we mentioned earlier were all applicable to the Old Testament. The authors were known and known to be men God was speaking through. They were known prophets. They were known to be inspired by God. They were all in unison with one another. They often referred to previous writings uh, as authoritative. Just to give you an example of that, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, verse 2, we read, In the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, discerned in the book of Numbers of the years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so Daniel refers to Jeremiah's writing. We see that kind of all throughout the Old Testament. So here we have the author of one book using the author of another book as an authority. Right? He's going to Jeremiah for prophecy um, and so we, we we see that there the third principle is that there was general consensus among the church that God indeed inspired the books as we said earlier by the time Christ was born there was no dispute over the 39 books of the Old Testament so the Old Testament is maybe a little bit easier just in terms of how clean things are and so those are the same 39 Old Testament books we have in the Protestant Bible today. And I, again, it's important that we understand that there never was a time ever when ancient Israel accepted any books of the Apocrypha as canonical. Never. There was never a time where they adopted any of uh, the Apocryphal books, any book other than the 39 we have in the Old Testament. That never, ever happened. Okay, So beyond the fact that the books were not disputed by the time Jesus was born, it's also important that we recognize that Jesus and the apostles constantly refer to the Old Testament as Scripture and as authoritative, right? Um, in fact, Jesus quotes from every major section of the Old Testament. Remember, we talked about how um, the Hebrew Bible divided things up a little bit differently. But just to give you an example, in Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus says, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that's a quote from Jonah 1.17, so Jesus is using it as an authoritative text. In Matthew 13, Jesus quotes Isaiah. In Luke 20, 41 through 44, he quotes from King David in the Psalms. In John 3 and 5, and in Matthew 4, he quotes both Moses and the Pentateuch. So Jesus often referred to the Old Testament as an authority, as the Word of God. Now, the apostles did the same thing, right? They often appealed to and quoted the Old Testament as God's authoritative word. 
And just by the way, as a brief aside, when you're reading your Bible in the New Testament and you get to those passages where everything is in all caps, the reason that's in all caps is because it's letting you know that's a quote from the Old Testament. Okay, So when you see that, now you'll know. If we read <clears throat> Acts 17, 2 and 3, we find Paul appealing to the Old Testament. It says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, the New Testament has been written, so what's this talking about? What Scriptures is he reasoning with them from? It's the Old Testament, right? Reason with them from the Scriptures, explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, quote, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. So here's Paul using the Old Testament in the synagogues. Paul spends three weeks, in fact, here, teaching from the Old Testament, using the Old Testament to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised, that He is the Christ of whom the Old Testament speaks of coming. And so we see the Old Testament quoted like this all throughout the New Testament. And so there is universal consensus that the Old Testament was the Word of God and therefore to be obeyed and lived by as authoritative. Basically, the only difference found between the Protestant Old Testament, what we have in our books, the 39 books, and the Hebrew Bible is really just the order in which they appear. That's it. Otherwise, we have the very same Old Testament scriptures that Jesus himself learned, memorized, taught. And of course, since he's God, ultimately he wrote it all. But you have the same Bible the Apostle Paul reasoned with in the temples in the Old Testament. Other than that, the order, it's the very same book. Now, that's a lot of historical references, and it feels a bit heady, I'm sure, but it's really important that we understand we have the same book the apostles used. We have the same writings that Jesus knew and taught and referenced. In fact, when Jesus was in the wilderness during the times of his temptation, to what did he appeal? Three times he says what? For it is written. Well, he's appealing to the Old Testament as an authority against the temptations of Satan, right? And so the written word that you and I have in the Old Testament, we can be very confident that it is what the early church understood it to be, and it is, in fact, what the apostles and Christ himself had. Now, I think, again, the Old Testament produces far less questions than the New Testament, though I don't think the New Testament is very difficult to answer either. So I want to spend the rest of our time with the New Testament. The New Testament was written really over a very short period of time. The New Testament was written in about 50 years. That's it. So you have the Old Testament written over the course of about a 1,000 years. The New Testament was really written in about 50 years. So just in one lifetime, the New Testament was written. It's comprised of 27 books by eight or perhaps nine authors, again, depending on who wrote the book of Hebrews. 
The Apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, 14 if he wrote Hebrews. And the makeup of the New Testament is the four Gospels, the book of Acts, the 21 epistles, and the book of Revelation. The first book written of the New Testament was actually the letter of James, written around 45 A.D. The last book to be written was the book of Revelation by John around 95 A.D. So before the New Testament was written, the Old Testament was the only writings in the church. We understand that, and they were deemed to be the authoritative Word of God. Jesus is born. The apostles are called. They're inspired by God. They start writing the New Testament. It's all written within 50 years. Like the Old Testament, the New Testament was also recognized as the inspired Word of God, and it went through these same Inspire, that went through these same three principles we mentioned earlier, um, right? The author had to be known to be an apostle or someone in close association with apostles. So we think of like Luke, right? Luke penned the book of Acts as well as Luke. They, the books had to be consistent and in unison with the other known writings so if a book that the Apostle Paul wrote, it had to be in unison with other books the Apostle Paul wrote, and it had to be in unison with the whole Old Testament. So there were checks and balances there. And then there had to be a general consensus of the church that this was indeed from the Apostle Paul, was indeed from James, was indeed from so forth and so on. So we have all of that. And then, of course, when you get to the New Testament, you see that the Apostle's themselves specifically refer to other apostles' letters as being Scripture. Now, that's important because we understand the apostle themselves was inspired. And so we have apostles saying, yes, this letter by this apostle is the Word of God, is Scripture. We have an example of this in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. We find Peter referring to Paul's letter as being Scripture. Listen to what it says. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. Well, we still have that today, don't we? Untaught and unstable people distorting the Scriptures. But that's not the point. So here we have Peter, an apostle, pointing to not just this particular letter of Paul, but all of the letters Paul has written so far as being Scripture, right? as they do also the rest of scriptures. So here's Peter confirming Paul's writings as being scripture. In 1 Timothy 5:18, we see Paul quoting from both Deuteronomy, we've talked about the, the Old Testament, but he is also quoting from Luke as scripture and authoritative. In fact, listen to what Paul says. Paul says this, he says in 1 Timothy 5, 18, 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. That's from Deuteronomy. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, that's from Luke. So now you have Paul referencing Luke and the Old Testament in one, one verse there. Now, of course, we have John, the apostle who wrote the... Uh, John, who wrote Revelation, rather, who says that was directed by Christ himself. Revelation 1.11 reads, it says this, Write in a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So Jesus himself is telling John, write this down and send it to all the churches, right? And then he names them to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So we have the apostles' writings. We have the apostles verifying the writings of other apostles. We have things being written directly under the command of Christ. We have all of that. And then it wasn't long before the New Testament letters were being copied and being sent to all the other churches. I mean, after all, if John's going to send this letter to all these churches, you know he's not going to just send one, right? They're going to copy it and send it around. So all these letters are being copied and sent to different churches. This is why we have so many copies of manuscripts. And we even see commands for this in some of the epistles. So, for instance, in Colossians 4.16, we read, And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And for you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So this is Paul saying, after you read this letter, send it to the Laodiceans. And by the way, I've written them a letter as well. When you get that, you need to read that. Okay. So because of the copying and the sharing, most of the churches were aware of and accepted the majority of the New Testament by the early 2nd century. Now, look, they didn't have fax machines, so we understand it took a little bit of time, right? So it took time just to copy the scrolls, and then they had to get it to places. So, But by the early 2nd century, right, the majority of the New Testament had and acknowledged the writings of the New Testament. Sorry, by the early of the 2nd century, the churches had the writings of the New Testament and had accepted them as such. And there really wasn't any controversy over the canon of the New Testament until the middle of the second century, right? Up to that time, the letters were regularly used in synagogues. They were regularly taught from. They were used in sermons. They were recopied. They were sent to churches around. They were known to be the Word of God. And then we see something unique happen in the mid-2nd century. We see the rise of Marcion. Marcion was a heretic in the mid-2nd century, and he played a vital role in the church, ultimately for good. But what Marcion decided to do was that he was going to judge for himself what was and what wasn't Scripture all by himself. He just decides, you know what, I'm going to make an official list of what is and isn't from God. Now, he was born in about AD 85. 
So everything had been written by the time he was 10 years old. The Old New Testament was written by the time he was 10 years old. So here he is coming late to the scene and deciding for himself that um, what is and isn't Scripture. So what did he decide the New Testament should look like? Well, he published his own list, and when he published it, you know, he just cut out a few things. He cut out half of the book of Luke. He got rid of Titus and First and Second Timothy. And in the end, he only had 10 books and a half of another. That's all. That's what he decided was Scripture. So he decided that 16 and a half books, he could just do away with. I mean, the liberals of our day basically do that too. Don't like this book? Just toss it out. Maybe they're a descendant of Marcion. I don't know. Anyway, but this was actually very good for the church because what it did was it forced the church to formally and officially acknowledge which books were canonized. What was the rule? Which books were God's word? So remember, we've already, the, the church has already known. But with the rise of this heretic, it forced the church to formally and officially acknowledge this. Now, let's fast forward a bit in history, get past that. So we're looking at uh, somewhere around, um, you know, 85, 100 or so, 110 A.D. with Marcion. You fast forward a bit. When the mass persecution of Christianity has ended under Constantine, and then we have something... Very interesting happened. Constantine commissions one of the most prominent early church historians, Eusebius, to oversee the making of 50 copies of the New Testament. So this was in AD 313. All right, so we have a long time passed between Marcion and this time. There was a lot of persecution. We, we all know that with all the emperors, right? Now persecution's ended, and so... Christianity can breathe a little bit, as it were. I mean, it thrived anyway. But so now Constantine says, well, I want 50 copies of the New Testament. Eusebius, do get this done. Well, this act, again, forced the church to formally recognize which books were in the canon. This thought kind of started back with Marcion. Now they're going to have to compile a whole New Testament because that's what Constantine wants. And so they're going to have to go back and verify and decide, okay, which books does the church always recognize as being the Word of God? Now, just a note, this is way before any pope or the Catholic Church officially existed as we know it today, right? Way before that. So the idea that we got the Bible from the Catholics is really just ignorant nonsense. So after this decree, there were three categories of books that uh, Eusebius kind of made, okay? The books were those books whose authenticity was undisputed, right? So what books has the church, is there no dispute whatsoever? The standard, again, was that an apostle or one who worked with an apostle, such as Luke, uh, wrote the book. And so in this initial book, in the very first list, every book except... James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude made it in. 3.13, every single book except those couple 
initially were considered undisputed, known books inspired by God. 313, take that Catholic Church. And there was no other books, by the way, that made this initial list that isn't in our Bible today. Okay? Revelation was listed at the beginning as possibly questionable, but only due to the fact that it hadn't been as widespread, shared, and it wasn't as known throughout the Eastern churches. But in the end, after Eusebius is done, after everything was gathered, all 27 books of the New Testament were included and understood to be what the church has recognized as the authoritative word of God. Right? Early 300s. Now, the final canon work was completed largely by a guy named Athanasius in A.D. 365. This is where the canon of the New Testament is defined formally as the 27 books of the Bible that we have today. It was also, at that time, forbidden strictly to include any other writings officially by any kind of council. And this decision was ratified in the 393 A.D. Council of Hippo. So, now we have a recognition of what the church has for history, acknowledged as the Word of God. A heretic rose up, tried to change the Scriptures, forced the church to make official statements. And what the church discovered is that the books that the church has always viewed as being God's Word were the books that were God's Word, all 27 of the New Testament. So we have that acknowledgement really in the early 300s, and we have the official councils ultimately ratifying all of that work in 393 at the Council of Hippo. So we now have a formalized 66 books of the Bible, though the church accepted these quite long before that. Now they've made it official, and here's a good time to mention the need for councils and the good they bring. So, councils have primarily dealt with heretics and with heresies. Councils were not what we got the Bible from. They just simply made formal statements. Um, and that's still needed today. Anytime there's a heresy that rises up and it uh, attacks the Bible in such a vast way that it dissuades or leads Christians astray, it's a good time for councils. We've had several of those. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy is one of those. Um, and we've had several more. In fact, recently we have the Statement on Social Justice, which was put out by a whole bunch of uh, prominent ministries in our, in our day. And in the future, we'll have more of those that, we, uh, that we'll have to do. When those things come out, it's not to say this is a new teaching. It's just very simply to say, no, that is an old heresy. This is what the Bible says. And it forces the church to articulate the doctrines that the Bible teaches uh, clearly and concisely. And that's exactly what this council did. As a result from a heretic trying to 
discard known writings, the church was forced to say, you know what, actually, formally and officially, these are the books that the church has always believed and known to be God's word because of these things. And what we end up with is the same Bible that the early church had. Nothing missing, nothing added. So, I saw a lot of dates and just kind of information. And this portion of experiential theology is a little bit more heady, but I would still say it's very much experiential. Because remember, experiential theology is that our emotions don't rule our theology, but our theology conforms us, transforms us, it affects us, it changes us, and it elevates our faith in Christ. And so this information is good for us. And affections can't be truly raised without understanding. I mean, this is what's so prevalent in the charismatic church today. They don't have their affections raised for Christ. They have their emotions raised for Christ. And emotions go up and down. Affections are constant. We need understanding to have our affections truly raised. Our faith can't be elevated unless the Holy Spirit is illuminating the mind in wisdom and knowledge. Right? We're to be renewed. Our minds are to be renewed, right? Not our emotions. Nowhere in Scripture does it say our emotions are renewed. It's our minds that are renewed. And so learning church history is a part of that. It can help and it should help us uh, in our faith and our trust in Scripture. So then how does understanding the canon of Scripture, and tonight really is just a very brief overview of the canon of Scripture, there are books about the canon of Scripture. And you can go, I mean, there are. there is a science uh, we're not going to really get into it here of, um, uh, you know, Bible interpretation and critical analysis of the manuscript texts and that sort of thing. Books and books and books you can read about that. But I think this is sufficient for us to understand enough about the history that we can have confidence that what we have is what the early church had. And it doesn't really matter how much... The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, tries to change history. History is very clearly against them. We had the Bible long before anything existed like what we know the Roman Catholic Church to be today. All 66 books. And by the way, just as a freebie, the even the Catholic Church did not include the books of the Apocrypha um, in their Bible until around the time of Martin Luther, basically in response to Martin Luther, because um, some of those books, not only are they not in the Bible for good reason, but they also give approval for the very things Martin Luther was fighting against, such as praying to the dead and all that sort of stuff. So most of church history, this has been what the whole church has known to be the Bible, the 66 books of our Bible. If you go back, again, the Hebrew book, I think they compiled it in about 22 books, but it was the same, uh, same books that we had. They just ordered it differently. Well, so how does all this help us? 
Well, primarily, it answers the question of how do we get the Bible? And how do we know we got the right one? And I think as those questions are answered, I would suggest to you that understanding this and contemplating this should really do three things for our walk with Christ. This is actually very, very practical to our faith, right? The first thing that it should do is it should cause us to be in awe of God's sovereignty. I mean, just consider, right? Over a thousand years, 40 different hands writing the Old Testament. They never contradict each other. They never mess up the narrative. They always get it right. And then in the New Testament, in God's sovereignty, it was all written within the span of one lifetime. You know, that makes it really easy to verify things, right? It's not that the author's been dead for 500 years. So it should cause us to see God's sovereign hand and His care in maintaining the Bible as we have it today for us and being the same that the early church had. That's one thing. I think the second thing it should do is it should raise our affection for the Word because we realize that we're following the same book that Jesus taught from and the same book that the apostles wrote and taught from. It's all the Word of God. When we read the Old Testament, that's the same Old Testament Jesus grew up reading learning, teaching in the synagogues. It's the same Old Testament that Paul used to reason with the Jews in the temple to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. When we read the New Testament, it's the same very letter that the Apostle Paul wrote that Peter said, this is Scripture. And so it should cause us to be very trusting and to raise our affections for the Word of God because we realize that this is what the church has always had and known and believed. The only difference is my version is in English and theirs wasn't, right? Or yours is in Spanish or whatever the case may be. I think the third thing that it should do is it really should instill a desire for us to share this word with someone else, with others. It should help us understand that this book does lead to Christ. This is the real gospel message. This is the only book that gives the answer to the depravity of man. It's the only book that answers the question of why is there evil and what do I do about it? It's the only book that answers the question of is there a God and does He love me? It's the only book that is a book of absolute truth without any error. What an incredible book. When you look at just the brief history and how it's all come together, Really, only a fool could look at the history and come to the conclusion that this is not a God-breathed, sovereign work. 
of the living God. The evidence is all around. The proof is all over the place. Ultimately, we have to have the Holy Spirit to convince us, to convict us. We can give facts all day, but as we read from Peter earlier, right, there are those who always twist God's Word. So ultimately, we have to trust in the Holy Spirit. Now, next week, we're going to cover and get into the characteristics, the four characteristics of the Bible, which are going to be very exciting. And then we'll move into the doctrines of God, which will be a very awe-inspiring section 